Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So today is a a special day. We are wrapping up our series on Jesus' first followers. And so uh, this has been our summer series talking about Jesus', well, his first followers. And um, we've really been hoping through this series to learn some lessons from our ancestors in the faith and also to maybe feel just a little bit more connected to them on on a personal level. I don't know if your family's anything like mine, but at some point, my parents came into uh, possession of these really old, I don't even think they were photographs, I think they were maybe drawings of some of their, you know, ancient relatives, and, um, and so you look at the pictures and you think, wow, I'm, I'm you know, biologically related to this person, that's pretty cool, uh, but that's kind of as far as it goes. But then we in our house have these old black and white photos of our grandparents. Do any of you kids have pictures of your grandparents in your house? Yeah. Are they black and white pictures or are they? This thought occurred to me that perhaps I am the last generation that's old enough to have your grandparents' photos in, in black and white. Because that's, no, oh, I guess that's true, but I mean... Anybody can do black and white photos, but um, anyhow, we have these black and white photos of my grandparents, and any picture, any old pictures of my grandparents are really, really valuable to me uh, because they've passed on and I don't get to see them anymore, but because they were a significant part of my life. I was blessed to have all four grandparents still alive into my early adulthood, and, um, and it was pretty remarkable. In fact, my grandmother... Uh, was, uh, well, my, my mom's dad was the last one to pass away, but my grandmother was a part of us planting renewal. She would uh, proudly say that she was a charter member of our church, and um, yeah, her presence here was pretty amazing during the first uh, few years we were doing it. Anyhow, these pictures are valuable to me because I feel a personal connection to them. Uh, I knew one of my great-grandparents and didn't have much of a personal connection to him, but I remember this thing happened when my uh, grandmother passed away, and the whole family's kind of coming and going through her stuff, and she, of course, had things that were precious to her that kind of were a couple more generations back because of her personal connection to them, and so I'm looking at these pictures, I'm looking at, you know, the, the stuff that she has that represents the connection she had a couple generations before, and I don't, I don't feel it. I don't... I don't feel connected to those things. Those are just old pictures of old people. I mean, I know that there are people who, if they weren't there, I probably wouldn't be here either. But, but I don't feel that connection just a couple of generations back. And part of the hope in this series is that you would somehow develop, in some ways, a personal connection to our ancestors in the faith. Even though that's something that we might struggle to do in our own families, just going back uh, beyond your grandparents or your great-grandparents' generation, um, to, uh, it would be, I think it would be pretty cool for us to feel that with Jesus' first followers. Believing that, as the author of Hebrews said, that in, in some kind of mystical, real way, they are like a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, 
looking uh, down on us from heaven or, or in on us from eternity, and they are somehow very much a part of our experience here today. Uh, so we've looked at these first followers. We've talked about Jesus' disciples quite a bit, um, and uh, we uh, are trying to grow and see them as members of our spiritual family, as a part of our heritage, to be connected to them. Uh, one of the things that Jesus said to his disciples just before he left is, is recorded in Matthew 28. And this is what's called the Great Commission. And so these disciples at this point had walked with Jesus for several years and had immersed themselves in his ministry and, and done the things that he told them to do and listened to his teaching. And, and, uh, and Jesus is about to ascend to heaven and leave them there. And these are this uh, passage from Matthew 28 uh, called the Great Commission represents uh, some of his last words, his final commands to his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 18 records that, Then Jesus came to them, the disciples, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, he says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We've talked about this before, but remember that the whole point of being someone's disciple is to learn under them and to become like the master. And so for Jesus' first followers, they'd walked with him for several years, it's their time to be like him. And so it makes sense that a master who had called disciples to follow him, when it's time to leave those disciples and essentially put the stamp on, okay, you're now ready to be your own teachers, you're ready to be your own masters, you're ready to uh, take the next step. What's the next step? To go and call disciples. A disciple-making rabbi, when he's finished his work with his disciples, or maybe the work is never really done, but when the disciples have walked long enough to be enough like the rabbi to sort of take the next step in ministry, that rabbi calls them to go and make disciples. This idea of making disciples is something that the church has historically thought is really, really important. Uh, after I graduated high school, I went and uh, did, worked with a ministry called Youth with a Mission, YWAM. Uh, YWAM's the, uh, the abbreviation for it or whatever. Anyhow, um, th their verse, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. The school that I did it for them is called a discipleship training school. And of course, when we spent three months doing lectures and training in Perth, and then we were headed over to uh, South Africa and Botswana for a, a few months of outreach ministry, and the commission that they send us out with is to go and make disciples. And so I spent some time overseas, and when I got back into town, I was a part of a kind of an experimental distance ed class uh, from a school down in Florida that was taking place here in our community, and the school was called International Seminary. Guess what their verse is? Matthew 28, go make disciples. They were a little more traditional, so it was go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So they were, you know, they were pretty sold on the King James. Um, they actually, <laughs> oh my gosh, they actually, you could attend International Seminary if you wanted to. I, I did a year there and vowed I would never go to seminary again, but... Um, they had a song, and this guy flew out to Longview from uh, Florida 
for our graduation when we finished the first year. And, um, and he brought a trumpet. <laughs> he, brought, he brought a trumpet to our graduation thing and played their, uh, played their, <laughs> their song based on Matthew 28. I don't know why I'm laughing about this. Um, so you can determine that either I am really a jerk or, um, anyhow, uh, moving on. So Luke records, uh, Jesus's great commission to his disciples with a little bit of different wording. Uh, uh, Luke records this at the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, Jesus is there talking to his followers. They're gathered together and, and he doesn't say to them, go and make disciples, but he does say to them. Uh, to wait in Jerusalem. He says, you're going to be given power uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And then he said, and to the very ends of the earth. And so believing that Luke's uh, account of that is meant to complement Matthew's, it's not meant to say he didn't say that, he said this, it's he said that, and he also said this. And so the disciples uh, have this commission from Jesus to go and make disciples. And then he furthermore tells them, look, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And I want you to go and be my witnesses off to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so they have a a commandment to make disciples of all nations. They have a commandment to go out from Jerusalem and to reach out. And the historical record of the disciples, the traditions that we have or the different things that have been preserved, uh, talk about how the disciples did what Jesus commanded them to do. Uh, the, the first uh, disciples went out, uh, so imagine it this way, their master, the man that they've been trained over, they believe, came from heaven to earth, traveled a great distance to call them into discipleship, to reveal the gospel to them, and, um, and ultimately to die for humanity. And so to be like their master, they traveled great distances to carry the message of what he had done uh, to the world around them. Uh, I just want to run through a few of these, probably if for no other reason, because I've lived tons of my life as a Christian and never really heard what happened to the disciples. Uh, If I heard anything, it was probably this, that most of them were martyred. And indeed, most of them were martyred. Um, John, uh, the Apostle John, is the only one who wasn't martyred, um, but most of them were. Uh, Philip and Paul, actually, I didn't even know this, but they were martyred around the same time. So you have the Apostle Peter, you have the Apostle Paul, who the two of them are responsible for much of the New Testament, Paul, the the lion's share of it. But both of them ended up being martyred in Rome under, uh, I think it was Emperor Nero, uh, around 66 A.D., and uh, they both also engaged in missionary travels that covered all across kind of the Mediterranean region, uh, and uh, especially much of the Northeast Mediterranean. So like present-day Turkey, Greece, those areas were covered by Paul and Peter traveling around, planting churches, preaching the gospel. Did you know that Thomas made it all the way to India, as far east as India? And in fact, I'd heard that about Thomas before, but Bartholomew is believed to have made it there as well. So somehow these guys, and and they started off just migrating kind of over to the east. They were in Iran for a while, 
And then Thomas somehow made it over, you know, the Himalayas and into India. I think that's remarkable that these guys got that far in that day and age. Um, Andrew was known as the apostle to the Greeks. He was martyred in southern Greece. Uh, the tradition with him is that he was martyred on a cross that was in the shape of an X. And so these disciples uh, preached the gospel. Uh, most of them were martyred. And some of them, when they were martyred, it was t- they were told, you're going to be crucified. And they didn't feel worthy to be crucified on a cross in the same manner as Jesus Christ. I just imagine the humility in these people. And so the tradition is that Peter requested to be crucified upside down. He said, I can't be crucified on the same cross as Christ. And, and Andrew's request was, well, turn that cross into an X and crucify me on that because I could, never, I could never assume to die the same death that Christ died or to be worthy of that. Um, he traveled through regions of northern Greece. He made it up to Macedonia, Romanian countries. He even made it up into the Slavic countries. I mean, basically preached to Russia. Uh, Jude and Thaddeus, or sorry, Jude... Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot uh, preached together in the province of Syria. They were both martyred in what is now Beirut. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever been over there. My brother lived in Lebanon for a while, so I got to go to Beirut once. And I cannot tell you, it is crazy to be in a city that was there, you know, when the Bible was written. We just don't have a lot of that on this continent. I mean, I like to see the mountains because I'm like, those mountains were there, you know. Uh, so long ago, but nothing else was, you know. Um, but when you travel to different places of the world, kind of the birth of civilization areas, the cities are right there. Uh, you could, we were at one place, a bridge, where you could see the graffiti that the Roman soldiers had left, like, on the rock when they passed through, you know. You know when you go somewhere, like, out in nature, and someone carved their initials on a tree, and you're like, that's such a bummer. Why would somebody deface God's creation like that? Well, the Roman soldiers did that, too. They're the worst. Um, anyhow, uh, Philip tri- preached to Greek communities and, and also made it over to North Africa. He died in 80 AD. Matthew did this tour day, the Mediterranean. Uh, he was martyred in Ethiopia. James the Less, oh, I forgot. I had a picture to show for this and I never put it in there. My bad. All right. Uh, James uh, wrote the epistle of James. He was the bishop in Jerusalem. Uh, he was martyred in around 60 AD, stoned to death. Um, and then this Apostle John ministered across much of what is present-day Turkey, uh, all around the Mediterranean. He spent a lot of time in Ephesus. We know that he was banished for a period of time to an island called Patmos, and that's where he had this vision that became the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll probably never do a Sunday morning series on that book. <laughs> no, maybe we will someday. I don't know. Um, But the interesting thing about the Apostle John is he lived so long. He died at around the age of 98. Uh, But John lived so long that he provided a living link between the first generation of Jesus' disciples, the first generation of his followers, to the second generation, what we would think of as the church fathers. Uh, Some of these ones who lived uh, throughout the first and second century AD, had extensive writing and record keeping for the church, and, uh, and a couple of those guys, one was uh, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch, and Polycarp is another one of Smyrna, which, if you're not a Bible scholar, those names might not mean much to you, but these guys are a big deal and a huge part of our church history. Both of them claimed, and tradition confirms, they were disciples of the Apostle John. 
Which is really important because at times, when we're standing so far removed from history, it's easy for us to read the stories of Jesus and think to ourselves, yeah, people started to embellish, people started to change the narrative, people just started to make stuff up. But when you can show a living connection that goes back to the written word, and when you can find old artifacts and dig up old manuscripts that confirm that things haven't been changed, it adds credibility to the whole story of what we claim has happened. And so the fact that John lived long enough to have connections with these other people who wrote so extensively and kept such amazing records of the faith and doctrine and all of this stuff, we know that people didn't just start believing that Jesus was God in the 4th century AD or in in the Dark Ages. We know that those beliefs are Christian traditions that go back to Jesus' first followers. Uh, So you imagine uh, what it was like back in the day. Jesus' first followers, you have these people, these leaders of the church, knowing about this really old man, John, who was one of the original followers of Jesus, and the opportunities they had to sit from him and learn under him. And I just think to myself, like, what an amazing opportunity would that be to have one of Jesus' first followers there in the flesh and to sit with them and to hear from them. I just, I can't imagine what an incredible privilege that would, oh, wait a minute, someone's coming in. What, who is this? Oh my goodness, it looks like we have, we have one of Jesus' first followers here today. Well, I was, I was just talking about that. Wow. Stylishly dressed too. Wow. Someone. <laughs> yeah, you should. Would you get a chair for me too? My back's a little sore. I'd like to sit down. Thank you. What a servant. Truly a servant. Must have learned from the best. Let me get you. This is called a microphone. It'll amplify your voice so people can hear you. Yeah. Well, you're welcome. Hello. Hello. Central Wildcats. You got an affinity for that school or? Well, you know, I was in the area. Felt like I should, you know, be part of the culture. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, welcome. Uh, which of Jesus' first followers are you? Uh, hello, I, I, am, I am John. Hi. Uh, but, you know, some called me the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, I've, I've heard that before. You know, if I recall, uh, that nickname is only recorded in the gospel that you wrote. Well, you know, yes, true, but I did feel it was important to document the nickname, you know, for posterity, right? That makes uh, sense. While the other authors left that out, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's beyond me. just seemed like people should know that I was known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Me, this guy. Yeah, well, you wrote your gospel. I, I think you wrote a few other letters or, or things that made it into our Bible, right? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. A few of my letters, and of course, my record of the vision I had on, on Patmos all made it into your copy of the Bible. Uh, as I got older, I realized that it was important for people to be able to access some of the wisdom I had gained over walking with Jesus for most of my life. What better way to pass those lessons on to others than to write it down in hopes that it would stay recorded for all time? Yeah, I suppose uh, writing things down is a great way to pass them along uh, or to remember them. Uh, a great way for people to have an opportunity to learn from you because you you can't really be present here to teach us today. Well, you can today, but but ordinarily, 
this is a great way for you to have an influence on disciples who would come long after you're gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Teachers teaching disciples to make disciples is a very important part of how the message of the gospel gets out there and vital to helping people grow in their walk with God. But, you know, the older I got, the more I embraced the language of family to describe the relationship between older and younger Christians. Oh, the language of family. Well, that's interesting. Well, when Jesus taught us, he brought us this unique revelation of God as a father who loves his kids. Jesus embodied the love of our Heavenly Father. Every action he did proclaimed to people that our God is love. It just seemed to me that many people find it easiest to understand love through family relationships. So I, the one whom, you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved, me, yes. uh, and a number of other leaders and, and teachers in the church really began to lean into this idea that we really are one big family under God. You know, I guess I have noticed that in the New Testament. Uh, there is this obvious emphasis on church relationships being understood in the context of, of family. Right, yeah. So I would say things like, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Or one time I wrote, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. You know, I seem to remember reading that somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'll do well uh, to read it, even better to remember it. I think the faith community grows in the most healthy way when you keep in mind that you are God's children. You are part of his family. And God has given us teachers who are to be like fathers and mothers to us in the faith. Teachers might be invested in their students' growth because of professional or social obligations to be a good teacher. Fathers and mothers are bound to their children with much stronger bonds. Healthy fathers and mothers lay down their lives for their children. They stay connected even after they are grown. In my experience, spiritual teachers who embrace their students as if they were their children don't give up as easily. They stay committed and raise up children they might, um, that, that they might grow up in their faith in Christ and become fathers and mothers to others who are young, passing on the faith from generation to generation in a relationally rich community. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. Well, why, why, thank you. You know, uh, an another reason I favor the language of family is that teachers have the luxury of being super selective when it comes to choosing disciples. Fathers and mothers tend to be fully invested in whomever God gives them to raise up. There's an, an acknowledgement in the family that we don't choose our family. We get uh, who we get, and if we'll walk together in healthy relationships, we'll see the beauty of growth and fruitfulness that exists in families because God knows what he's doing when he puts us together the way he sees fit. Hmm. You know, that idea that we don't get to choose our family is, it's kind of a challenging concept for us. We're, we are people who really like to have our own say in things. And, uh, and although I think many of us are committed to loving our, our families, uh, we, we like to have our choice about just about everything else, especially if it comes to church family. We really like to have our choice about that. Yeah, I can understand. Choice is appealing, but in my experience, surrender and trust are far better ways to walk with Jesus. Remember, he is God, the word that was from the beginning, made flesh that we might see the very face of God. I think it is far better to, under, to, to surrender and trust the one who is love and loves us so dearly than to be under bondage to our own whims and appetites. You know, you make, you make another really good point. Gosh, we are so lucky to be hearing from you today. 
Well, I, I know. <laughs> I'm just grateful to be here. I look around and I feel right away that you are all beloved children. Honestly, this family seems so great. Maybe I'll just stick around and put you out of a job. Well, wait a minute. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, let's not be too hasty about that. Uh, you know, thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Um, and sure, uh, let's give him a round of applause. Oh, oh. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. All right. Can you guys believe John came to visit us today? That's remarkable. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. All right. You know, it, I think it's interesting to think about Jesus' command to go and make disciples. And what the disciples did with that command, where they, they took it and they executed that mission by weaving the relational dynamics that we would usually reserve to think about like marital covenants or biological relation. And they wove those kinds of dynamics and obligations to one another into this brand new faith community, this brand new faith family. Um, they took the idea of family and all of that means and planted these churches or these congregations all around and, and they adopted into it the language of family. Uh, talking about people as brothers and sisters and, and children of God. Now, as I say that, I think it's worth noting that one thing we know about the first century church is that it happened during the first century in the Near East. And, and one thing we know about how families lived in that day is that they lived differently than our families live nowadays. Um, we'll see references in the book of Acts or other places to ideas of like whole households being saved. Uh, we'll see writings and letters to churches referencing the idea that these churches are meeting as households. And so uh, one thing that we know is that, that it wasn't uncommon, in fact, it was the norm, uh, for families to live in somewhat larger kind of compound type dwellings. And so uh, rather than kids moving out and getting a job, you know, when they're, I don't know, 22, and some of your parents are like, yeah, that would be a dream. Um, but rather than people like growing up and maybe moving across the country or living really far away, what would happen is people would grow up and when they got married, uh, typically in, in the... Uh, in the husband's side of the family, a room would be added to this kind of large, sprawling compound house, and another family unit would begin to dwell there with aunts and uncles and extended family. And, and these compounds over time would just continue to grow bigger and bigger, and families would be living kind of in, in these little mini villages uh, that they had. And so um, that was a really convenient structure for the church to be founded in because it was really natural then for these families to do everything together, to follow Jesus together. Um, and, uh, and so uh, it, was a, it was an easy, maybe an easier way for church members to look at their brothers and sisters or the other believe, their fellow believers as family because oftentimes, quite literally, they were family. Um, 
Now, the fact that it's different now and families operate a little differently now and our households are organized differently, I really don't think lets us off the hook for wanting to somehow embrace the idea that my obligations to you are similar to, or at least in Christ, should be along the lines of what my obligations would be to, uh, to my own children or my own parents or my own siblings. Um, just because it looks different doesn't mean that we bag this whole idea that relational structures and commitment in our relationships are really, really important. Um, these things are, are part of how God has designed us to walk together, and they're, they're really important for a church to function and be healthy. Uh, if, you, if you are attending a church and you don't begin to feel some kind of relational connection to the people there, you probably won't be attending it very long unless there's some kind of inner guilt or something that just keeps you going back. But it's important to feel these connections to people. Uh, when we go through difficult and hard things, uh, so often it is family that sort of circles around and helps. Uh, I was talking about my grandparents earlier, and when my grandparents passed away, just down the street in hospice, uh, uh, three of them uh, passed away there. And when they passed away, who was in the room? Family was in the room. It wasn't their square dance partners from years ago. It wasn't their co-workers from years ago. I mean, some of those people would stop in and say bye if they were still around. But through their final hours, the room was filled with their family. And so I think that we can, we can begin to lean into that and begin to think differently about how we relate to one another and especially think differently about how the Spirit would want to move in our hearts and help us to see one another. Um, Brain science, brain science shows that in terms of discipleship and personal growth and maturity, that when we feel relationally safe and connected, our brains are primed to grow and change and mature. And we see that especially in, in healthy families trying to raise kids, kids who come from a, a stable home. If you spend any time working like in the public school system, you see this. And, and statistics have shown over the years that the number one indicator of academic success is a stable family life. It's not anything else. And so you might feel like uh, you really didn't do your kids any favors helping them inherit like the intelligence gene. You just might be like, I'm sorry, kid, I didn't do you any favors. But if you just love them and like sit down for a family dinner a few times a week and take an interest in their academic life, they will outperform the geniuses who don't have that. And so this kind of stuff is really important. Um, I think in many ways, it's, it's, uh, it's so vital to our church communities being able to faithfully witness to who God is. Uh, because when, when as, as John pointed out, Jesus is the one who really got his disciples and his first followers to embrace this idea of, uh, of relating to our creator and who God is as a loving father. Uh, and when you look at Jesus' ministry, he didn't just use... The, like the familial terms to reshape our understanding of who God is, but, but he used the gospel of his kingdom to reshape our understanding of what family is. There's a story in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is confronted uh, about his family of origin. Uh, his, his mother and his brothers are there, presumably his sisters too. I think one of the gospels maybe says that explicitly. 
but they're there and they are concerned that he's lost his marbles. They, they feel like their poor son has fallen into some kind of delusional mental illness and they're there to take him home and, you know, take care of him because that's what family does. And, uh, and so they're like, hey, Jesus, your, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting for you. And I have no doubt that Jesus knew why they were there and he was like, no, my brothers aren't going to jump me and put on the straight jacket and haul me away. But he said in that moment, he says, anyone who does God's will is my mother, or sorry, my brother or sister or mother. He redefined who he felt a family obligation to. And it wasn't the people sitting outside who thought he had lost his marbles. It was anyone who does God's will. Of course, when he was teaching his disciples how to pray, he begins the Lord's Prayer with the words, Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father. God, Jesus didn't come to earth and say, God is my Father. He said to humanity, God is our Father. In the beginning of John's Gospel, uh, the author refers to Jesus' work by saying, But to all who did receive him, to those who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then near the end of John's gospel, he recounts this story of Mary Magdalene uh, encountering Jesus in the garden tomb. Uh, She's there. She's discovered the tomb is empty. She doesn't know what's happened to Jesus And Jesus comes up and begins to talk to her, and and through some mystery of the resurrection, we don't fully understand it, she doesn't initially recognize him as Jesus, Uh, but then as he begins to talk to her, and when he says her name, it's like her eyes are open, and she realizes, oh, this is Jesus that I'm talking to. This is the risen Christ. Anyhow, she's overcome with emotion, and he says to her in John chapter 20, 17, he says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. People who study the scriptures will point out that this is the first time that Jesus calls his disciples brothers. And many people believe that this signifies this incredibly profound impact that the resurrection has on who we are as human beings. That somehow through Christ's work on the cross, through his death, through his sacrifice, humanity uh, has experienced something new and has been transformed. I like to think of it this way. Jesus, through death on the cross, entered into and joined himself to humanity in the furthest depth of our fallenness. How far have we fallen? Well, we're creatures who now die. That's how far we've fallen. And through the miracle of Christ's sacrifice and the crucifixion, he enters into the depth of that and joins us at the furthest, lowest point of our fallenness. And then through the miraculous power of God, as he joins himself to humanity in that low and fallen state, he lifts humanity out of that state, out of the pit, and places us somewhere different. As he joins us in the depth of our fallenness, we are joined to him in his, deli- in his divine life, and we're transformed forever. We're no longer slaves. We're now sons and daughters. We're no longer fallen. We are heirs with Christ, the scriptures say. It's like he's the firstborn. 
And a son, you know, seated at the right hand of God. And it's as if the firstborn son is looking at us and saying to us, hey, your seat, your place at the table is right here next to me. You're not the servants. You're not the slaves. You are the sons and daughters of the Most High. And there are seats all around this table for you. So we've inherited from Jesus' first followers, this proclamation that this is what God has done in humanity. This is the gospel, right? That God has transformed humanity. That we're now sons and daughters of God. We've been restored to the family of God. And we're supposed to be taking this message and sharing it with the world. As we learn what it is, as we follow uh, maybe spiritual fathers and mothers or Teachers, if you want to use the words, you know, the nomenclature of disciples rather than family. As we learn and as we walk and as we mature, we are, um, we are expected at some point to reach a level where we now inherit that command ourselves to go and make other disciples, to go and proclaim the gospel to anyone who's going to listen. And our job is to welcome lost sons and daughters into his family. Our job is to raise up spiritual children to spiritual adulthood. Our job is to tend to the family of God. We need to be disciples who make disciples. I want to pray together, but, and then we'll take some time uh, to, to do a little family exercise. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be a part of your family. The parts that we understand, we're so grateful for. The parts that we don't understand, we're so grateful for. Uh, We just receive in faith this truth that we are your children. That is who you have made us. That's how you've transformed us. And we thank you that you were so committed to that work. There was no price too high. You were going to get it done. We're so thankful that Jesus laid down his life for us. Uh, And we worship him as our risen Savior and Lord. And we embrace him as our brother. And we embrace the paradox that exists in that truth. We don't know how it works. But it's your word, and so we believe it. Believing that it's impossible to embrace Christ and not embrace the people who have been made in his image, not embrace the people that he uh, declares are his body, uh, we... We embrace one another, too. Holy Spirit, we ask you to reform the way that we think about our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We acknowledge that in this day and age, especially when we feel connected to the body of Christ or categorized to parts of the body of Christ that maybe have been brothers or sisters that we've wanted to keep our distance from, um, we repent of that and we just say, yeah, Lord, they're our family. Um, and where we need to forgive, we choose to forgive. Where you would call us to bring voices of encouragement or correction, we want to be obedient to that. Uh, but we choose to love. We choose to love today. Yeah, we just thank you. Amen.